I mean, I think all the time about how music um, for me is the great illuminator of memory, right? And how my much of my childhood uh, feels foggy or like a quilt of neutral colors. And then music is um, the accent that makes it all make sense. It ties it all together. You're listening to It's All Dead, a podcast about the music we love and why we love it. I'm Kyle Hawk. Welcome to It's All Dead. I'm Kyle Honk. I'll be your host today on the show. Thank you so much for joining us in the uh, heat of July. Summer is in full swing, and uh, of course, many of us are not getting out these days, but uh, the good news is that there's just been an avalanche um, of great music these past few months um, that we have been writing about. Um, if you visit us regularly at itsalldead.com, you already know what's up. If you don't, um, head on over. We've had a lot of great reviews for some of the albums that uh, have been dropping lately, along with some features we've been putting together, um, an event piece on um, Under Oath, the Under Oath Observatory live series that they've been doing, which is really fantastic. A lot of good content. Uh, go check it out. And it's interesting, you know, we I've talked on this podcast before about, you know, this idea of um, an album and experiencing an album in whole, in sequence versus building playlists. We did a, actually a whole podcast last year, kind of like dissecting the, the differences and the way that we, we consume audio art, um, which was really fun. If you haven't listened to that episode, you can go check it out. But you know, there's an art to a playlist and an art to um, constructing songs together in a sequence or in a way that uh, tells a story or um, creates a mood or a vibe. But the the guest that I, I talked to on today's show has, has taken the idea to a whole nother level. Um, t- today's guest on the show is Hanif Abdurraqib, and you're probably familiar with that name. He's not necessarily known for making playlists. He's a poet, a writer, a cultural critic. He's um, written about music quite a bit. Uh, He's been published everywhere from Pitchfork to uh, New York Times, Alternative Press. And he's a writer that I um, think very highly of. I love reading his work. Um, I've been fortunate to uh, check out some of his books as well. He wrote one on a tribe called Quest last year that was uh, really fantastic. But this year, he's started a project. It's called 68205.com, in which he is creating playlists for each year of a span of time, which encapsulates his personal music influence of his life. He's going to do much better job of uh, talking about this whole project than I will. But I found it absolutely fascinating to get a glimpse um, into this and the way that uh, he's been thinking and constructing these playlists and then adding supplemental content like magazine covers and live concert footage and essays. It, it's just been a fantastic thing to to dive into these past couple of months as, of course, um, I've, I've been mostly locked indoors as a lot of you have as well. Um, but it's a really cool project. I was super excited to have Hanif on the show. And uh, yeah, without further ado, let's go ahead and dive in. Here is Hanif Abdurki. All right. I am very excited tonight um, to have a really special guest on this podcast. I've talked before about um, kind of my bucket list of guests for the show, and um, today's today's guest certainly qualifies. Um, I'm excited to welcome Hanif Abdurraqib. He's a poet, essayist, writer, cultural critic, 
all kinds of things, uh, hailing from Columbus, Ohio. Hanif, thank you for taking time this evening to come on the show. Kyle, thank you for having me, and I, I really appreciate it. This is a, a real joy. Yeah, definitely. Well, it is uh, it is a joy for me. I've been following your work for a while, um, but one of the things that really um, caught my attention, um, it's been a little over a year ago, you'd written a book called Go Ahead in the Rain, Notes to a Tribe Called Quest, who is one of my all-time favorite acts and obviously a, a beloved group. Um, and that was sort of a, a gateway um, for me into a lot of the work that you do. And then unbeknownst to me, um, I mean, you, you've got a byline in almost every music publication that matters at this point, right? I'm, <laughs> I've, I mean, I've gone through the list. You've, you've had the opportunity to contribute at so many places. Um, and your, your love of music expands just across a wide array of genre. And I was excited to find that you also had a, a history with like, um, for lack of a better word, we always struggle with what to call it on the show, but like the scene, um, I, I know you, I, and if I'm remembering correctly, you were at, uh, one of the reunion shows for my chemical romance earlier this year. Is that right? Oh, last year. Yeah. Yeah. I went to the one, um, that was like right before Christmas. That's yeah. amazing. Well, what like, was that experience like? Um, I, it was interesting. <laughs> you know, like, I think, um, the thing with, with bands that, that, mean a great deal to us in an era is mm -hmm. that they're not beholden to mean the same thing to us as we evolve through other eras. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, that music isn't, you know, beholden to meaning the same thing to them as they evolve through other eras. And so, yeah. you know, one of the great tricks of nostalgia is that um, nostalgia in some ways, or, or it, it can be um, emotions disconnected from reality or ideas disconnected from emotions or emotions mm -hmm. disconnected from ideas all these things i say all that to say um there were moments what made me happiest at the my chemical romance reunion show was seeing everyone else is everyone else around me respond to them yeah um, and across generations you know like folks who were significantly younger than me who maybe um came to Gerard way through some other medium first or folks who are way younger than me who like maybe ha had older siblings who put them on, you know, like um, yeah. seeing their presence reverberate through the generations meant a lot to me. Um, you know, it's the black parade is, is an album that, that carries a lot of emotional weight for me. And so um, being in the room when, when they were playing through some of those songs was really resonant, but um, you know, I, I, I I like flew out all the way out to LA to to go to the show. I felt like I had to be there. You know, it was one of those things when yeah. they woke up where when they went on hiatus. So I was like, if they ever come back, like I gotta, you know, no matter what, I gotta go. I gotta be there. Um, and you know, it was also one of those rooms where, um, it, well, at least where I was, it was a big room and there were a lot of people. But where I was in Little Corner, I was. It was just like such a warm and generous space. You know, I I know that there's a lot to mm -hmm. be. Uh, cynical about and a lot to complain about when it comes to concerts and people packed in a small space together but um, I just really loved how celebratory it was I think it was like you know right it was like the spirit of the holidays permeated the room um, you know but also this this one-of-a-kind night so you know I had I had some um, complicated emotions to wade through but ultimately I was thrilled to be there yeah, that's awesome. And I, I like how you talk about nostalgia. And I, I think that'll be a part of our conversation this evening is 
Um, we talk about your 68 to 05 project, um, but certainly it, it resonates because, you know, I mean, even since the inception of um, It's All Dead, we've we look back often um, and do a lot of reflection type uh, conversations on this podcast and pieces for the website. And so much of it is reckoning um, with things in a way that is complex because um, it's so easy to kind of look back with rose colored lenses, but we're kind of at a place now that we can't really afford to do that. Um, certainly with in certain areas. And I think that um, this is one, at least with the type of music that we, we talk about often on this show. So, um, there's a there's often a, a lot to weigh through. Um, so to talk about like the the main thing that I wanted to um, chat with you about tonight, you had launched this website called 68205 in which you were going back and um, creating playlists and finding like just sort of cultural artifacts of like magazine covers and um, having outside contributors write essays about all these different years that essentially, if I'm understanding right, encapsulate the experience of music that has influenced you and your life. And you've picked these years as sort of bookmarks for that. And uh, there's so much uh, that just fascinates me about this. But before we get into all that, just uh, let's start by, you know, telling, telling us a little bit about, I guess, where this idea came from, because this is, this is kind of a labor of love. It's a lot of work, I would imagine, to compile all this. Yeah. I mean, well, first came out of, it came out of boredom, (laughs) if I'm being real. I, um, in January of this year, I was I found myself in Iowa, in Iowa City. I was teaching, um, teaching out there. So I I'd like moved out there to teach just for the semester, not for my life. Um, you know, before before the virus sent me back home. But sure. Um, and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed, but I mean, I was only teaching like two nights a week. Um, and the rest of my time there was kind of just downtime to to be there. And so I had a lot of empty space. Um, and I started thinking a lot about how my music taste was formed um, mm-hmm. and how my very specific music taste was rooted in a series of artists and a series of sound and how that was attached to um, very specific lineage that I that I that I come from. Like my parents, their music fandom is tied to my own. I'm the youngest of four siblings whose music fandom was um, inspired by my parents, and then my siblings formed their own taste that was passed down to me, and then I formed. So I'm like, you know, my parents have their musical roots come from their elders, uh, and then my siblings, their musical roots come from my parents, and then I got to kind of. I'm the container that a lot of that poured into. So I started thinking about generationally um, how I fell in music, how I fell in love with music from a generational standpoint. Can I trace back the roots of not the first song I love, but maybe the roots of the artist who made the first song I love? Like what were they listening to? What was, um, what was on in the car when I was a kid and my dad would drive around, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, when could I first identify John Coltrane or Eric Dolphy just off of the sound of the instrument, those kind of things. Um, And I also knew that I had to put a clear timeline on this project. Right. And so I decided on 1968 because um, I thought back to the record collections of my parents and I remember music from that year, you know, um, and, and, and 68 for me, like specifically was, was such a singular year. 
um, particularly for black soul and, and jazz. And so I, you know, um, you know, I think back to that year and I think back to those Aretha albums and, and Ella Fitzgerald and Nina and beyond that, I think about like the mothers of invention, um, and Dylan, it's just a good year for me. And, and oh, especially, I mean, I think the peak of that for me was Van Morrison, who mm-hmm. combined these elements of soul and jazz and, um, you know, so so 68 I knew would be the starting point. And then I thought that I had to owe it to myself to think through um, when I felt satisfied about a time where my own musical taste had evolved and spanned enough and held enough um, for me to say, okay, this is not the end point of when I, where my music taste ends, obviously, but where I feel like I have reached, um, where I reached a, a peak of exploration through the lenses of other people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is to say, I think everything after 2005, I, I think my exploration was entirely uh, independent, still using the tools I got from other people. And so, and I chose 05 because I had two dear friends um, pass away that year. And those were the people who I think carried the torch for my musical exploration and, and with the knowledge I got from them and my siblings, my parents, my loved ones, my elders, and my community, I think I've kind of turned forward understanding music in a very specific way. Um, and so, and I know this is a long, long answer, but um, so 6805 started as just like, I'm gonna make some playlists you know, that was it. I was sitting in, you know, I had a mapped out, I mean, in my Iowa apartment, I literally mapped out this timeline and I was like, I want to make a playlist every year. And, you know, I'm gonna post it, I'll post it online, but I'm not trying to like do a lot of work around this. Um, I made a couple and people responded well to them. Um, And then things started to get a little more treacherous outside, you know, around mid late February and, and things started to get a little more uncertain um, and eventually the pandemic, uh, forced me to come home to Columbus, Ohio, and from where I live and to also, um, start to ask myself questions of what I wanted to do with this project. Um, and if I just wanted it to be me putting playlists on the internet and who would care, like, why would anyone care if I just put decades of playlists on the internet, you know, um, and and so that's how I that's how I said maybe I should make a website despite the fact that I don't know shit about making websites. <laughs> I went on Squarespace and was like, well, let me see what I can do. And that's you know people joke. I you know we I launched it in June, but really the month I mean it took months because the website took so long, like un, un- right. unbelievably long. Well, well, it looks great, um, and it's just to you know stop and state that's really beautiful the w- way you kind of laid out um you know sort of defining the um the parameters of of how you're approaching this and one of the things i was going to ask you was you know some of the earliest musical influences you can remember and you you touched on that one of the thing that sticks out to me from what you said you talked about feeling like a container with all these different sort of um people in your life sort of pouring into you in that way and i, I find that really um, really relatable. I think a lot of people that, and certainly if you have parents that love music and introduce you to uh, music as a child, that's that's something that is is going to resonate. Um, 
when you think back to those early days and the music that your family was sharing with you and sort of those first moments of sort of understanding that music could mean something to you personally, what do you feel um, like what, you know, uh, instead of asking like what sort of memories stick out in your mind, are there certain sorts of feelings that you remember in those moments that you've sort of recaptured and going back and compiling these playlists? Yeah. I mean, I think all the time about how music um, for me is the, great illuminator of memory right and how Mm -hmm. my much of my childhood uh feels foggy or like a quilt of neutral colors and then music is um the accent that makes it all make sense it ties it all together and so Mm -hmm. um you know do i remember all the details of a specific day with my mother no but i can definitely remember the song that was playing because I remember the song being translated through my mother's singing voice. Right. Um, And so for me, I I think revisiting these playlists, the ones I've done so far has been kind of um, building a map back to some of those memories, but also um, the great thing about these playlists is the the exciting thing is that a lot of this stuff um, I found on my own. I mean, yes, my, my family and elders and community and friends built, a map for me a musical map for me but it it bears mentioning there are some bands you know like richard and linda thompson i I found on my own um Mm. and and you know paul simon's graceland my my family definitely uh, or my community definitely showed me but like art garfunkel solo joints i found on my own you know so there's stuff like that yeah as as you've been going back and well first of all how many playlists currently of you know from 68 to are currently completed and on the site on the site there are nine playlists i believe don't hold me to that but i think there's nine um 68 in 2005 are definitely done well okay so on the site there are nine playlists for the years um right but there's also a section on the site for miscellaneous playlists where um if i'm just kind of in the mood for something i'll make a quick playlist so for example like on missy elliott's birthday i made a playlist of songs that she had produced um just this past weekend um i was so taken by uh leon lahavis's cover of weird fishes by radiohead so i made a radiohead covers playlist so that stuff yeah that's incredible. So as, as you're doing this, how much of it like requires research on your part versus like just off the top of your head knowledge? Like, oh, like, you know, 1972, I know exactly that, you know, the first 20 songs that are hitting that playlist. What is that? A, what is it like for you to curate, curate these? Well, the playlists are um, attempting, no one's going to listen to them like this. And I totally understand that. But the playlists are attempting to tell a chronological story of sonic influence um and historical influence for me so if there is a song on the 1988 playlist um there's going to be a song on the 1987 playlist that builds like a sonic bridge between the two in the Mm. same slot so more than research it's like a question of sequencing yeah and sequencing appropriately and so to make one playlist i have another playlist up you know i have another playlist in another window um in another one and another window. So I'm just kind of um, using the playlist to build off each other, but it's a really thrilling experience. You know, I mean, I, um, so much of what I do is tied to producing on hard deadlines for someone other than myself, which is, it's just the life I have. Um, But 
this is something that uh, feels exclusively my own and something that if no one visited the website, I would still be eager to do. Yeah, I I can definitely um, identify with that feeling. I mean, this is this definitely feels like that uh, a very deeply personal project. And you know, you mentioned kind of um, creating that sonic lineage through these podcast or through these these playlists. And even on the site, you talked about you described as drawing clear lines in a family tree, and you used an example of how you could go from Astral Weeks to Bright Eyes. I, I was wondering if you could give, like, do you have a specific example that you could share of how something kind of has already fleshed itself out as you've been creating it that was a specific line for you? Yeah, I mean, this is a, I, you know, um, I feel like this might be debatable for some, but pa- I think about Patrick Stump. Uh, and who's the lead singer of Fall Out Boy, as many people probably mm-hmm. know. And the line that is between him and Elvis Costello, but even beyond that, I can see a line between Stump, Costello, Van Morrison. Um, and not necessarily as writers, but as vocalists, right? As, a, as mm. producers of sound and as people who are interested in uh, bending notes. Um, yeah. And, you know, like I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm big on... Um, on the like nature of the boy band um and or or the the collective group band type of thing and so sure. i'm interested in the line between the beatles and new edition and in sync you know like mm. there are things that i'm considering and it's not just like how does this one song sound like this other song yeah and so as you've been putting this out in the world and people have you know started to visit the site and explore some of this, what are some of the conversations that you've experienced so far as it relates to some of these playlists? I mean, is, have you been surprised at how people have interacted with it so far? Has anything stuck out to you? I have, yeah. And the playlist, I mean, I'm going to be real. The playlist, the whole thing about the playlist uh, was that they were, um, you know, they're supposed to be long. Like these playlists are like five, six hours, right? Yeah. They're supposed to be immersive. They're supposed to be really deep so that people spend time with them. Um, and also to kind of slow the rollout of them, you know, because I was faced with this mm-hmm. option of do I put all the playlists out at once or do I slowly make them and roll them out? And making them so long and so immersive and so in-depth, I think, satisfies people. So I have seen these great conversations um, around just how people are spending time with them. Um, people listening to them chronologically throughout a, a work day, for example, like someone messaged me and was like, you know, I listened to this for the five hours I, w- I was at work today. Um, yeah. And I, I will say you can shuffle them. I mean, I, the chrono, the, you know, the chronology, the chronological order, the chronology of them is, is for my own personal, you know, affliction to, to for with my obsession with completion um, sure. shuffling them is probably the best way to go because you know you you kind of uh, get to live outside of my brain for a bit and enjoy it the way that you want to yeah well as i mentioned in addition to the playlist you've got sort of this supplemental content on the site that ranges from you know magazine covers that sort of capture a specific year to um, even essays that you've had other people um, contribute to tell us a little bit about like some of the other um, assets that somebody can find by you know when they go to the site yeah I'm obsessed with magazine covers um, and so when I decided to make a website I was kind of just like well this can't just be a website that houses these playlists because again why would anyone care about that 
what can I visually offer as a thing that makes the website feel like a deep dive that takes a long time to get through. And I'm obsessed with the way magazine covers can tell a story from year to year. Um, yes. And the way magazines, magazines themselves grew and or vanished, you know, um, mm -hmm. and the way black magazines, I'm thinking all the time about like black magazines and how like something like Soul Illustrated or uh, the Black Music Review, like how those grew and flourished and then, you know, no longer flourished. Um, Tan Magazine's another one. But I'm also, you know, like I'm someone who's like, a, I like holding old magazines in my hand, like old crawdaddies, um, old melody makers. And I wanted to have a place on the site where people could immerse themselves in that world and um, kind of see tangible items, tangible relics from an era. Um, and I thought about that even more so as I think physical music magazines become less possible for people to hold in their hands. Um, right. And, and so I wanted to create a space and I, and I'm obsessed with too, with, old concert footage i mean so much of my yes. life is spent finding old, like just last week i found um this 1969 sly stone at black woodstock performance that i've been searching for for almost a year and so so much of my life um is really dedicated to unearthing performances and kind of like reveling in um old performances you know like old those old gray whistle test performances mm -hmm. that feel to me really singular you know like i think all the time about roxy music doing in every dream home a heartache on old gray whistle test and how that is like nothing i'd ever seen before um and how generous and how how much gratitude i have for being able to be alive at a time where i can access that and watch it you know yeah i wanted to have that celebratory moment i want to have people let people be like people who are also obsessed with the visual performances of of, of old and of, of present um and in addition to all of that, I thought it would be, you know, not that anyone cares about my top five albums from each of these years, but it felt like I couldn't put this up without, you know, having some stake in saying like, here, are, right. here are my top five albums of these years that I probably don't want to debate with you, but you can look at them anyway. <laughs> um, um, and that was fun. That was the most fun part for me because I got to reconsider what actually were my top five albums of some of these years? You know, I got to dive deep. I mean, this was an immersive thing, um, you know, because I think it's easy for me to be like, gosh, 1979 was such a good year in music. Can't, can't pick. Uh, it's easy for me to do that, but it's a lot harder to be like, all right, I know London Calling's up there. I know Anita Ward's Sweet Surrender is, is one of the, my favorite albums of that year. Mm -hmm. I know that specials album is sitting there and Marianne faithful is right there too, you know, like, yeah. so, so going through some of these difficult years um, and having to ask myself questions of the albums that I love in those years um, and to challenge myself, you know, some, uh, some years were easy if I'm being honest and some years it was just a, a nightmare. Uh, yeah. Like, you know, 82, 82 was just a nightmare because I love so many of those albums, you know, <laughs> and, and, um, but ultimately at the end of the day, my question that I kept going back to was, if this is all about me, why do people care? And, and I wanted to make a space that felt communal, a communal expression of fandom is kind of what I kept coming back to. Yeah. Also, 
as places on the internet kind of shrink for people to write about music or to write about music in a time in a moment in a, in a way that's not timely or not pegged to anything um i thought to myself you know if i have the resources if i've earned the goodwill of vast communities and through my earning of that goodwill i've also earned like uh financial resources not a ton but like enough i want to bring back this kind of energy of the blog era where i just hit up someone and say write this, write something you're excited about for me and I'll pay you a little bit of money to do it, you know? Mm. Um, and so what I, what I landed on was this thing where um, I hit up writers I admire, musicians I admire, poets I admire, uh, music fans I know who don't always write about music. And I give them like a five to 10 year window. And I kind of just like, well, you sit with this, sit with this window and pick an album within this window and then write about that album you know, pick out, pick an album in this, you know, pick an album from 1972 to 1980 that changed your life and write about that because that's what I want to read. Like I want to read people. I want to read more than just myself on music. You know, there's so much music I'm I'm not equipped to write very well on. There's so many albums I'm not equipped to write very well on. And I want to, but I want to read about those albums, you know, like um, the poet Erica Foreman wrote about Janet Jackson's Janet album. I'm not equipped to write well about that album, but I love it. And I want to hear someone, I want to hear someone or read someone writing on it. And so there's something really exciting, I think, about being able to say, it's selfish ultimately still, right? But there's something yeah. exciting about being able to say, I just want to, I just want to give people an opportunity to write about music they're excited about because there's a real freedom in that. And there's something really exciting about that that doesn't exist as much on the internet anymore. But that existed for me when I was like, when no one was reading my shit and I was just like blogging to, to, to like 10 people. Sure. Um, and I wanted that space to live on, on this site. And I think that is what keeps people coming back in addition to like the new playlist. It's like, I can read people writing smartly and emotionally about music. Absolutely. Yeah. The essays have been fantastic so far and, and really diverse in, in terms of what's being covered. I And I want to come back to that, but I want to go back to a few things you said, because I I kind of want to nerd out here for a little bit. Uh, One, um, you know, hearing you talk about the concert footage uh, really resonates because I at least once a month will spend a a late night deep diving on (laughs) looking up um, old concert footage. And this isn't specifically old, but um, in the 04 year and not to come back to my chemical romance again, yeah, which is really random, but you, you had found, so I attended a show of theirs back in 2004, like just before um, they kind of popped with three cheers for sweet revenge. And it was oh, a, a just, one. Yeah. And, and so this was like a super small club show and it was in Oklahoma city. And I, a while back I've been trying to find, cause it's so hard to find footage of the band back in that era before um, they'd kind of reached this stage of popularity. And you'd found a specific clip um, that I had found last year that, that I love that I can watch and feel like I'm kind of transported back to that time a little bit. Um, but yeah, the, the videos have, have been fantastic. And then to touch on the magazines for a minute. So I, I made a whole list of magazine cover questions just in case I felt like you <laughs> wanted to talk about it. And it seems like that's something that you like, and I'm crazy about magazine covers. But one of the things, one of the things I love about it is clicking into each year and at least the years of my, my life and my sort of individual music exploration, I can be transported back just by seeing a cover. And one of the things I want to talk to you about is like, in your mind, what makes an out or a magazine cover iconic? Um, and and you talked a little bit about how just, I mean, that industry is fading in such a way because I, 
have so many experiences of going to the mailbox and pulling out a, a new copy of Spin or the Source or Double XL, and 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 so these things are so vivid in my mind in in relation to that time period. So when I look at uh, the you know going through the years on the website, I see these covers that I'm immediately kind of transported back to, and I, I love that. But I, I was thinking as I'm looking through them, in your mind, what what about a certain magazine cover makes it sort of transcend? Um, more than just, hey, this is the, you know, the issue of this magazine for this month, but it's something that really kind of solidifies its moment in that place in time. So I think a big thing, so two things with magazine covers. One, if they are delivering news of a tragedy or a heartbreak with a stark and surprising image. I mean, in my book, I talk about the source tribe called Quest Breaks Up cover. Mm -hmm. But also in like 2001, there's a Time magazine cover with George Harrison after he died where he's like holding the sunflower. Um, but I think what also makes a magazine cover stunning is if there's an element of um, playing into the public image, the preconceived public image of group band artists, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and a magazine cover that says they are who you think they are. I'm thinking of one of my yeah. favorite magazine covers of all time which is the rolling stone cover of fleetwood mac before rumors came out or right after rumors came out um Mm -hmm. where they're all in bed together you know um because that's exact that's pretty much saying oh these people are and of course understanding that's all a performance right right but it's saying oh these people are exactly who we think they are uh the the like the performance is paying off the xxl cover with ja rule jay-z and dmx the murder inc cover yeah uh, where you turn it over you know they're like in all black on the cover and then you turn it over and the magic trick is that behind their backs are holding like weapons you know yeah it's it's like um i like a magazine cover that that continues the, the trick continues the trick of the performance of uh of of loving a musician and buying into the persona of a musician. I like a magazine cover that extends the lie, even when I'm ready to not buy into the lie anymore. And yeah. now as I'm older, uh, it's a little bit harder to, you know, like that's, I don't necessarily fall for a good magazine cover anymore, but there's also fewer to fall for. Sure. Yep. That makes total sense. It's crazy. I've literally got the, that 99 XXL Murder Inc. cover listed here as something to bring up for discussion. And, and you described perfectly um, what I wanted to talk about with that. One of the things that I, I was thinking as I was looking through these was that something that stuck out to me is that there's the first time you're seeing somebody on a cover, like when an, when an artist has broke and they're, and now you're seeing them on this magazine cover, there, it seems like there's a lot of those. There's kind of a thread that you can find. And, oh, yeah. and that sort of goes back to like, oh, this person defined this year. So I was like, is there something about the the iconic cover that's somebody's first cover? But then I you mentioned, you know, that cover of uh, The Source in 98 with A Tribe Called Quest. And that's like, when I think about A Tribe Called Quest on a cover of a magazine, that's the one I think about. So I think not, you know, one of the earlier ones, right? So I don't know. There's a lot to it. Um, and it, But I do think that there is something that sticks out to me of like when you're seeing your favorite band your favorite artist on that cover for the first time there's an excitement that i think kind of embeds itself um that when you go back to it it still kind of i don't know holds some sort of meaning i guess oh yeah i mean i or even if and i don't know if this was their first cover but i remember i don't this this couldn't have been their first cover they had to have they were on another source cover before this i think but there was a crisscross source cover where they're like um 
you know, out there in like like prison blue outfits and the whole conceit was that they're like bad boys who were too cool for school. Like seeing that as a young kid was thrilling, you know? Yeah. For sure. I don't even know if I was a crisscross fan, really. I, mean, <laughs> I, I was, I suppose, as much as any kid was, but to see that felt like these kids are on the cover of source, like, you know, like they're my age and they're not that much older than me. Um, so there's, yeah. there's that too. And I will say going through the, you know, the tough thing about the magazine covers was you got eras picking the magazine covers for the site. What, you know, you had eras where the same people were just on every single cover, you know, yeah. there was a point where Debbie Harry was on like every single magazine cover for years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and so that, uh, Dolly Parton just like permeating any country or country adjacent magazine cover for decades, you know. Yeah. Um, so you know that was that was a bit tough. So one of the things I was just one of the reasons I was excited to talk about this project is that it is obviously so deeply personal for you, but yet is has the opportunity to be so relatable for so many other people. Um, and and certainly I've kind of found that experience and i'm wondering there has to be i don't know almost an educational element of this as well even if it's unintentional on your part that people that discover this have an opportunity to kind of travel back and and experience some of these threads that maybe they wouldn't have found on their own or discover artists and sort of these these time capsules um, of different periods of music that maybe they wouldn't have experienced before. I mean, is that something that is on your mind at all with this or something that you've heard as people have been talking with you about it? Yeah. I mean, I think the creation of rabbit holes for people to find, to fall down um, was a, a part of this. And like, I didn't think about this as an educational tool in the traditional sense. Like, I don't think anyone's going to use this in the classroom. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know, maybe they will, but um you know, but I am someone who's kind of obsessed with falling down rabbit holes and seeing what happens when I come out the other side, what knowledge I can kind of tumble down uh, and come out the other side with. And that was the whole purpose of this, you know, like the big reason for putting the magazine covers on the site is that on a magazine cover, you don't just get, you do just get the the context for that issue, but you also get a context for the times, the times that the magazine was released into, you know, you get some of these like, you get some of these magazine covers where it's like, here's Bruce Springsteen on the cover of Newsweek, but also it's like, here's a subtitle is like, or a, a subcategory of what's in the magazine. It's like a story about nukes, you know, or a story mm-hmm. about the political landscape. Um, and and I, I think there's something exciting about just the magazine covers alone, allowing for a type of history uh, and a yeah. type of education, a type of placing people in, the, in a certain time. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I kind of want to segue into one other piece that kind of, I think, makes sense, at least in my head in this conversation, and that um, it was probably about a month or so ago that you were a part of a conversation with Emo Night LA. Um, It was essentially a conversation about racism in in the scene. And you had some really um, just profound and um, just really thoughtful things to share in that conversation. And one of the things that stuck out to me is um, you had spoken, I think Sky Court of Issues had brought this up as well, of this idea that um, the way that music is taught in America is flawed. And even having conversations like this makes that obvious and, and even talking about race and music. And I, I wondered if you could expand a little bit, um, you know, for people that haven't had a chance to kind of hear that conversation or see some of your other, other writings, um, that idea of how flawed in this country the way that our, you know 
from a very young age were taught about music and the history of music in this country. Yeah. I mean, shout out to Sky too, who um, made me think of this because as someone who, do you, do you like issues? Do you like play this shit at all? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, like I like issues and, well, I mean, I, you know, and I, I particularly, I came to issues in part because of Sky, you know, like because of Sky's bass playing. And, um, you know, if your ears and yours is probably is, you know, and many people listening to this probably have their ears, but if your ears tuned a certain way, you could like hear Sky's bass playing and like just see the, inf- like the influence is just palpable. Mm. And in all the talk I, I'd, I'd all the read, you know, the, the stuff I'd read about issues, the stuff I hear people say at their shows, it's always about, um, you know, people have often, I think, tried to dislocate Sky from his very black jazz and funk roots, which are just, yeah. for me, it's just like, it's, it's massive. You can't miss it. You can't get around it. Um, and, and that drives the sound of the band in some ways. You know, I, I know Tyler's vocals do too, but like that drives the band. Sky's bass yeah. So that made me think of that. But also I had been, I have been, and I'm still mourning little Richard. Um, mm. And a part of that mourning process is having to come to terms with the fact that little Richard spent so much of his life exhausted with telling people what he'd built, what he'd earned and what he was owed and what he hadn't gotten credit for. Yeah. And if music if American music was taught well, or if the history of American music or if the history of black people in America was taught well with generosity, little Richard could have done so much else with his time, with the time we had for, right. Um, And so I I think about that. I think about, um, you know, not just little Richard, I think it was about sister Rosetta Tharp a whole lot and how there's just a large knowledge gap, I think, um, about how she contributed to rock and roll and blues music and just flat out guitar playing in general. Um, yeah. And so I'm, I'm mostly thinking about history and who gets left out of history and the damage that does, right? When we yeah. um, talk about the genesis of music and um, American music, particularly, obviously, but also the way that music that was created here didn't begin here. Right. The reason why go ahead and the rain starts out the way it does is because I, I, there are rhythms that did not, were not born in America, but were born from the people who were stolen away and carried to America and right. even beginning with that, or even thinking about that thoughtfully, I think reshapes the conversation around American music um, and makes it a bit better than it is now. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, the, well, thank you for sharing that. And, you know, I talked earlier about, you know, again, the container concept of just your our early years and how that can influence our, our trajectory of um, music and art. And as I talked about, my, my mother is a huge fan of music and shared so much with me and was so um, important in kind of the early years of my life. And, you know, Little Richard is an artist that she shared with me, but we didn't have conversations in those ways that helped me understand um, certain levels of influence and certain understandings about the history of the music. It hasn't been until recent years that I've had to like start 
backtracking and going back and, and digging into those things that um, were really important pieces that were left out of my own and, and somebody that writes about music and claims to be such a music fan that had so many gaps um, in that way in my own history with music that is really um, frustrating. And certainly I, I take ownership for that as well. But um, I, I think it's something that um, it's important for people to think about. And it's so easy to to not think about it, I guess. Well, this has been a, an incredible conversation. I, and we've spent a lot of time talking about 6805. You do so many other things. Um, what are some of the other projects that you're working on right now or some things that you know you, you would like for people to check out? Um, my next book of nonfiction, A Little Devil in America, comes out March of next year, which is far from now, but I'm thinking about it very excitedly because I just finished copy edits notes on it. So I'm, so it is like officially outside of my care uh, for the first time in like two and a half years. Um, And so that is one thing I am currently finishing writing and recording the new season of lost notes. I'm hosting um, lost notes for the new season. So it's like seven episodes um, the theme is 1980. So, um, you know, it's the 40th anniversary of 1980. So we're looking at stories around music that were, um, that impacted 1980. So we're talking about Grace Jones's warm leatherette. We're talking about the deaths of Darby Crash and John Lennon on back-to-back days. Um, you know, stuff like that. Ian Curtis, like Joy Division becoming New Order. Um, and, and Stevie Wonder's Hotter Than July. So just really, you know, like a thrilling kind of, experience for me to, to get to nerd out about that stuff um let's see i am it's wild because i've been working on um so many things but i feel like you know some of them might not come to fruition as as quickly as as some others so i'm trying to be thoughtful about about yeah. what i what i eagerly wave my hands about but um book lost notes um and you know, this is the first year in a lot in a long time, the first year maybe since 2015, where I haven't spent and I will not be spending the majority of the year making a book or touring a book. Um, like even if the virus hadn't taken hold, like even if we weren't in a pandemic, I would not be spending a lot of time touring a book. And so yeah. I'm really trying to to make the most of that and um, do things like 6805, which don't center my voice entirely and allow for um, other writers to find a space in um and to do things that kind of just excite me a bit yeah fantastic well thank you for taking time to come on the show and and share tonight it's been a it's been a really great conversation no this has been great man thank you for having me and i I really appreciate talking to you all right thank you again to hanif for coming on the show um, what a great conversation. I had so much fun talking with him. I hope you enjoyed the show as well. Um, if you want to learn more about Hanif, you can go to his website, adirabkeeb.com. Um, check out a lot of his published work and his books. And of course, go to 68to05.com to uh, check out uh, this project that he's been working on and, and dive into some of his playlists. That's going to do it for today's show. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, if you like the show, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And of course, subscribe to the show. Tell your friends. Um, otherwise, come visit us at itsalldead.com. We've got a lot more good stuff coming your way. That's it for today. I'm Kyle Hawk, and we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening to the It's All Dead podcast. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. 
Then visit us at itsalldead.com for the latest music news, reviews, and much more. 